Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On The Margin. Today, I'm joined by my sunny co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko, and I'm giving you a positive adjective because this is the first roundup of the new year, baby, and I want to bring it in the right way. How are you, Mark? It is, and and and, and very positive back in, in Chapel Hill uh, after a really nice holiday break, and although it is freezing today, I had to break out the hoodie. I mean, it, it's it's cold. It's tw- it's in the twenties, which we don't we don't get a lot of twenties. Um, so I guess I'll do a quick reveal. I guess by popular demand, you know, the, the listeners have demanded that <laughs> do we keep it. doing the reveal. The people so, have spoken. <laughs> the people have spoken, and uh, so, but I, you know, I wore the the orange pants with the Genesis Block sock game for you know the Genesis Block day on the third. Um, so I figured I couldn't wear them twice in a week. So I, I went with, with the green candle pants. Cause I think we're going to see some big green candles and the, you know, uh, rocket ship Bitcoin. There's a moon in there too. Yeah, baby. Yeah. There's a moon. And, um, so, so we're going with the green candle. Cause I, I think there's gonna be some huge green candles on Sunday night, uh, into Monday, the opposite of, of this past week with the matrix fort report. But, um, Lots to talk about, and uh, I'm sure we'll get there. Lots to talk about macro, too. I mean, you know, Apple's down t- uh, 10% in the yeah. past six trading days. That's a big yeah. move for a very big company. So, Yeah, I, I pointed this out to our producer, Will, as well, when we had our little debrief yesterday before this episode, um, that the S&P is also down the last five trading days. I didn't check yep. yesterday, but I guess it closed in the red. And, you know, you and I started our predictions episode by saying that in the beginning of 2023, everyone was super bearish and it turned into a very bullish year. Yep. Who knows? Maybe this could be a little bit more of a rocky year now that everyone has flipped. Look, uh, as goes the first five trading days, as mm-hmm. goes January, as goes the rest of the year. And those mm. first five trading days of January are pretty good indicator. I think they're like 92% accurate of what happens for the year. Uh, it was kind of like, uh, you know, the inverse of, of an NBA basketball game, right? You don't have to pay attention to the first three quarters, just watch the last quarter or even the last two minutes. And, and that's the game. Uh, the opposite is true here. You only really need to watch the first five trading days and you know how the rest of the year is going to go. Um, look, stocks are super highly valued by, by any measure. And they were due for some correction. Um, yeah, I got, and I got an interesting debate with my, my partners um, on the, the Bitcoin miners. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Pomp and Jason were, oh, they're going to the moon. These things are, people don't understand how profitable they're going to be. Like, it's in the price, guys. I mean, these things have recovered 400, 500, 600% off, off the bottoms. And they proceeded to fall about, you know, 35% in, in a week. Now they've recovered a little bit. They had a big day yesterday. Um, but look, it, it, there's a difference between a good stock and a good stock price. 
I mean, a good company and a good stock. There can be lots of great companies that are just overpriced and they don't have to keep going up no matter how great the company is. I mean, Microsoft, good company. They have aspirations to basically corner the market on, on everything uh, and push it into Azure. But there's some technology, we're actually investing in it, that could make all of what they do on cloud obsolete. That, that could never happen. Okay. I mean, I, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to give you the inside scoop about something that we've been cooking up at BlockWorks these last couple of months. So in March of this coming year, in London, BlockWorks is going to be gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers. That's fund managers and allocators, financial institutions, think big banks, payment providers, etc., and professional traders at the largest institutionally focused conference in digital assets, DAS. London. Now, it's very rare that you get the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Point72, the large HFTs, the family offices all in one room at the same time. So if you want to know what the big money is doing in digital assets these days, this is the conference for you. To give you an early sneak peek at some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, one, the intersection of macro and digital assets. And where are we in the market cycle? We're going to be talking about real world assets, so that stable coins, on-chain treasuries, all that fun stuff. And we're going to be talking about things from the allocator perspective. So what are the big money managers in crypto doing these days? And because you are such a good listener of On The Margin, I'm giving you an extra code MARGIN20. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, use code MARGIN20, and I will see you in sunny London town in March. Then well, this is, you know, there are so many parallels in between Bitcoin and gold, and people have this debate about the gold miners as well. Every now and again, someone will look at it and the uh, gold miners and say, these things are crazy underpriced. You know, there's yep. this one company, uh, this management team, and I think the reality of the, the, the Bitcoin mining business is that it's a really tough business. If it isn't already huh. commoditized, it's well on its way to being commoditized. That said, I think the the thing that folks missed, and if you're not in the weeds of what's going on in Bitcoin, there's a revolution going on in Bitcoin block space that transactions, transaction fees on the Bitcoin blockchain are, I think they're bucking what's got to be like a six-year trend of down only. And so the miners are starting to print more money. Here's yeah. here's an interesting hypothetical for you though, Mark, before we, because there is a lot going on in the macro and I want to get to the labor market. We're going to have uh, jobs data coming out halfway through this podcast. So I want to get our predictions here. But one thing that I was thinking about, because we were having an internal debate about this as well. Last bull market, there was a premium that was ascribed to public market proxies for Bitcoin. So yeah. if you were a stock, right, like Coinbase or uh, Silvergate or Voyager, Voyager or Galaxy Digital, there was a that you actually the stocks actually much outperformed Bitcoin. MicroStrategy is probably the best example of this, and I think the reason for that is because people wanted exposure to crypto, but they didn't want to hold the underlying. Say, no oh, Bitcoin base is close enough. Now, do you think that that premium is still going to exist with the existence of the Bitcoin ETF? No, I mean no. In fact, it's funny. You know, I I, I use I, I use the old school stack of of National Geographic's to to make the computer at the right height and. When I pulled them off the shelf today, this is the one that came up on the top. And that's what's about to happen. The, the great migration, this, this Buffalo stampede of capital into uh, these Bitcoin ETFs, which again, I'm, I'm sticking with my 
my projection. I mean, we're recording this on Friday the 5th. This is our epiphany show. So we're going to have to do a bunch of epiphanies because we'll release on, on the Feast of the Epiphany the 6th. And, and I'm going with Sunday night the 7th, right before the King's birthday. Um, you know, Elvis's birthday on Monday. Uh, also my 13-year-old's birthday. Um, I, uh, I think they're going to crown the king and, and make BlackRock the official uh, first Bitcoin ETF. You know, there's all this stuff about they're going to do them all at once. Maybe. Maybe they're going to do them sequentially. We'll, we'll see. Um, but BlackRock's definitely going to be one of them. If they're not the only one, they'll definitely be one of them. And the amount of money that's going to shift from these proxies into the Bitcoin ETF, just kind of like, you know, you bought G, people bought GBTC and they're like, why am I paying 2% for holding Bitcoin? Like, why? Well, because it's the only way if, if you wanted it in your brokerage account or your IRA, that was the only, I guess there were some IRA services, but if you wanted a brokerage account, the only way was to own this trust. And if you wanted to own direct ownership, even like BITO and, and the others were futures. They weren't direct spot ownership. And MicroStrategy is, you know, a Bitcoin bank bolted on to a kind of money losing software company. Um, so it really is a Bitcoin bank at this point. And the reason it outperformed not only from this proxy phenomenon, but also they have a little bit of leverage. Not a huge amount of leverage, but, you know, Michael can go borrow money back when he borrowed the first tranche at zero interest rates. It's a pretty good deal. And buy Bitcoin. Now, he looked really stupid for a, a long time. People were like, oh, he's going to get a margin call. He's going to go to zero because if you borrow money and buy an asset that goes down, that's a bad outcome. Now, it's only a bad outcome if the loan can get called. And everybody's, oh, well, his loan's going to get called. Nope, never got called. Came really close. I mean, came really close, but loan never got called, never got the margin call. And um, you know, now he's looking really smart and I guess he's he's buying more. So I do think some of those things are absolutely gonna see less. Now, you take something like Coinbase, that's a that's a toss-up because while people certainly move from Coinbase into the ETF. The ETFs, many of them are going to settle in custody inside um, inside Coinbase, and so they're going to make some some additional profits. Now, there's one, I guess, there's one guy last night who issued some reports saying, "Oh, but you're overstating how much that's going to be," and this stock's going down by sixty seven percent. I'm like, dude, really? Come on, do some math with me, because while that's happening, okay, you're you're not going to make as much as some people think. Fine. But what's going to happen to the price when we have both a supply shock, which is coming the end of April, and a demand shock, which is coming on Monday? Price is going up. And price is probably going to go up a lot. And so that's going to be very profitable. If you go back and look at, at Coinbase profits from trading uh, in the last bull cycle, it's a good thing. So- um, yeah, we'll see. You know, it's so funny just to make a comment on that. And I'll caveat this by saying anything in the world could happen. We, sure. you know, the, there could be some big macro sell off and all these stocks and Bitcoin, everything could go down quite a bit. So is this guy going to be right? Who knows? Maybe. But one thing that I've figured out or just kind of thought about is sometimes it's very difficult to understand, especially when you don't understand something. 
this cacophony of voices. There are always people that are yelling at you really confidently that this is going to happen. And, you know, I'm very, I'm torn between this idea that it's just unknowable. It's very difficult to really know anything. You're always going to get differing opinions. But then there's this other side of me, which says like 90% of the people out there just don't do the work to really understand. And it's much easier to just talk confidently. Like, I don't understand how you could look at Coinbase's business in this moment in time and come to that conclusion. Like you, everything no, about you're the business. exactly right, Michael. Matt, that's the point, right? You you can't have done substantial work and research. It's not possible. It's, it's you can not. look. You know. So okay. Do you, do you not like Coinbase's transactions business? Okay, I understand that. But guess what? The price. Look at what. Uh, crypto prices have done in Q4. Look at what some of the institutional exchanges that have published data have done. You can look at coin, you can back into Coinbase's volume based on on-chain data. Everything in there says that they're going to outperform. And then they have all these other things. They've got base, they've got their circle partnership. All right, but I, I want to get to labor here in two minutes, but I want to ask you this question about MicroStrategy because yeah. I think essentially the strategy for Michael Saylor was to harvest that premium. So he had the, the leverage part of his balance sheet, uh, the, the debt uh, the leverage part of his balance sheet. But also, yep. whenever he sensed that the premium on his business was getting high enough, he would sell equity and use it to buy Bitcoin. Yep. And I feel like that's maybe going to go away. If this premium gets sucked out of the market, then he won't have that option as available to yeah. him anymore. It's just kind of interesting to speculate on. I mean, how do you think MicroStrategy ends up doing in the presence of a Bitcoin ETF? I, I think it does okay because it'll be a huge beneficiary of of the rising price but that premium will get will get sucked out and so there'll be it's kind of how i feel about the first days of the etf approval if capital i capital f if gbtc is not approved right if they stick it to Barry and Michael and don't give them the approval to convert to an ETF, all 90%, some some huge amount of the money of that $25 billion in GBTC is leaving. It's just, it's going to move and it's going to be instantaneous. So that would be a, a, a that would be very disappointing to the market because the market would be like, well, why isn't, why isn't the price going to the moon? Why aren't your socks right? Well, because, Look, I think a couple billion, maybe as much as three billion comes in on Monday. Big number. Um, but if if all that is is converting out of GBTC into these, you know, IBTC or whatever gets approved, then net net, you're not gonna have a bunch of, of upward pressure. And that would be a big difference. Now, long term, I don't think it matters. I think long term. There's 300 billion that's coming into this market. Uh, and that's a 1% allocation. That's not even a two or three or 4%. That's just one. So I think it's a monster supply. I mean, demand shock. But I think, I think MicroStrategy will, will be good, but not parabolic. Like people just, it's, it's amazing, right? When things are going down, they extrapolate that it's going down forever. It's going to zero. Yeah. Okay. Probably getting to a 
point where you should be a buyer, not a seller, right? And we've talked about this when things go on sale and in markets, people run out of the, run out of the store. Like just stay in the store and buy the stuff that goes on sale. So when it was going down, and and the discount, it was already trading at a discount to the to the assets on its balance sheet. Then you probably should have been a, a buyer. Now when it's trading at a significant premium, because there's a, a hashtag I have: insiders don't sell at bottoms. If an insider of a company is selling their stock, they know more than you. They don't sell when it's undervalued, right? We had this thing when I worked at the university, when people would give a gift to the university, we'd sell it immediately. And, and I always said, we should run a hedge fund that just shorted all those stocks. Because if you're giving a gift of an appreciated asset, you're not given the one that you think is going up more. You're given the one that you think is topped out and you can't unload it fast enough. So that, if, if Michael's selling shares to buy more Bitcoin personally, it's because he sees the writing on the wall that the valuation of that business is extreme. It's like all the cloud companies and all the software companies are wildly overvalued on a price to earnings ratio. So, but he's, he's a great arbitrageur. He really is. Now, you could argue that, well, maybe he gets on the wrong side of the, the arbitrage, whatever. But he is a great arbitrageur, and he and he's done this multiple times. People forget this is not the first time Michael Saylor has reinvented MicroStrategy and pumped the stock to the moon. He went from three to three hundred and thirty, despite all the people shorting it in two thousand. I think we looked this up. I think it was like two thousand or something like that. On well, split adjusted. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm, I'm just talking about in real time, it was 300 and then split adjusted. You're right. It was, it's in thousands. Oh, my goodness. Uh, let me see if I can get this. Uh, no, it's not even worth looking at. No, no, it's, it's, it, but just, just go back. And then it went down 97%. No, no, I'm sorry. 99%. It went down 99%. And he got fined a huge amount, like a lot, by the SEC and had to say mea culpa. Um, and then he restarted. And ran the software business for a long time. And then he had the epiphany. There's a show on the epiphany. He had his epiphany and he talks about it, you know, literally having the epiphany that the Bitcoin was this thing. And now, and, and, and it really works, right? I mean, the epiphany is this religious, you know, uh, celebration. He is almost a religious figure. In the Bitcoin world, right? I mean, people think of him as a high priest and they they hang on every word and they put the glowing stuff behind him like, like you know, St. Michael. So, and, and you know, the new, the new um, Bitcoin ETF ad that is the, I think it's the Shawshank Redemption footage with Michael saying, what's the first best asset? What's the first best crypto asset? Bitcoin. What's the second best? There's no there second no, best. There's no second <laughs> best. And he's, and he's he's all he's not he's not Morgan Freeman, but he's pretty close. I mean, he's pretty close to Morgan Freeman man, as a voiceover guy. Uh, Mark, I, for so long, I used to resist this comparison between crypto and religions. And the honestly, the longer I've been in it, the more it just seems right. And I, I guess my you know, not commenting on Michael Saylor the person. I understand why he rubs some people the wrong way. It rubs me the wrong way when people say what I view as this crazy lack of nuanced, simplistic stuff about Bitcoin. And like, look, <laughs> anyway, and so it rubs me the wrong way too, so I get it. But 
I think you have to acknowledge that this trade that Michael Saylor made is going to go down as one of the best of all time. And it's literally one of the best of all time. And, and, and look, and I think this is not entirely true, but not untrue. People are now comparing it to this is the Berkshire of our age. And well, what does that mean? Right. Yeah. I know. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm the same <laughs> way, but, but, but let me, I'll, I'll, let me at least give I have a another comparison for you. To the, pardon? I have another comparison. I was actually going to call it the, the George Soros trade of our time, the uh, Black Wednesday yeah. trade of our time. Yeah. 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 But, but well, the, the reason the Soros thing, Soros was a temporal trade, right? They busted the bank, Bank of England, and it was over. Now they did a bunch of other things that were good too. But, but the reason this could be kind of like, kind of like uh, Berkshire, what Berkshire did, right? He took a failed company, bought the public company of a failed textile company, converted it into a financial services company. And really what it is, right? What Berkshire Hathaway is, it's a, it's a financial services conglomerate. It owns a bunch of financial services companies and then owns some operating companies too to, to generate cash flow. And it's a leveraged trade on stable cash flows that never pays taxes because he got this special deal that no one else can get. Now, Sale is not going to get that deal, but but he does have an interesting deal where because he is a publicly listed company, he can issue debt, not at negative cost like an insurance company. Like the really th- great comparison, if he were to convert the software business to an insurance company business, then it would be just like Berkshire. Because then you're using negative cost of capital leverage to buy an asset. And the reason Bitcoin, it's not exactly like a portfolio of cash flowing companies, not at all like that. So that comparison doesn't work. But in the new age, Bitcoin does have the potential, and I'm not I'm, I'm, I'm not here yet, but I, I, I hear people who, who speak this way. It could be the only asset, right, that, that you need, right? It just, it, it becomes this, this self-sustaining asset that everyone converts their fiat into. And the idea of the ownership of other assets starts to diminish as they get tokenized and I don't know. I, I, I don't think it actually works, but I, I'll acknowledge that it's not, it's not the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I do think that uh, I have a different view on Bitcoin. I've stopped believing in this Bitcoin is going to be a $100 trillion asset. Now I'm kind of looking at it. I think crypto is in, in many ways a, an overreaction to the mistakes of what we've seen in the fiat monetary system for a long period of time. The it, crypt, it, like Bitcoin, especially with this 21 million hard cap, you know, no supply increase ever is kind of the, you know, we've swung the pendulum entirely the other way. So I understand why that very simple narrative appeals to a lot of sure. people. But I, I don't know. I, it, there's really no, there's never been a perfect monetary system. There are always trade-offs. Um <laughs> And I think the biggest idea that anyone's really expressed about the Bitcoin from my perspective is the Jeff Booth, you know, the content, the constant system of, you know, marginal inflation to a constant system of marginal deflation. And I used to think that we just couldn't get there. Now I think 
if we all decide as a society that that's what we want, if our current policymakers keep running $2 trillion deficits into perpetuity, we might run a really crazy experiment. And I just, it's just impossible for me to predict how that's going to play out. That interesting history versus what's happening now. And to your point on when the deficits start running out of control, at a time when, you know, if, if we're having this incredible prosperity, right? They're telling us we have these, you know, the greatest economy ever. I mean, that, that's been actually said in the last 12 months, not the greatest economy ever, but, but okay. If that were true, then we'd be going the other way. Like, you know, not that I'm a, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to make this about people, but, but in the Clinton era, when he happened to be president for that that period of time, we came really close to eliminating debt, right? We had surpluses, right? We had surpluses and debt was going the other direction. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Mark, you know what was my favorite Jim? Jim Bianco came on this program, gave us a, an analogy that actually people were worried at that time. Yes. The government yes. was going to have to stop issuing debt. We would not have a risk-free rate, and then we would need to come up with a synthetic. Can you? Absolutely. Isn't the funniest thing on the planet? Yes. Maybe I'm, what's the opposite of aging yourself, de-aging yourself? I didn't realize that. Oh, one more anecdote, and then I'm forcing us to switch to labor because now we've got the jobs data. So don't, don't, don't cheat and peek. But there's a great documentary that, again, I'm de-aging myself here. But the Y, there's a Y2K documentary that just came out on HBO, and yep. man, I lived through that period of time, but I was not aware of everything that went on and the doomerism and people going off to live. People, Mark, there are interviews with people they quit their jobs, sold their businesses moved out onto a ranch, bought generators. Yes. Super preppers. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I, look, I love because these human stories. There, They're so there awesome. Were, They're, look, there yeah. was a legitimate discussion by, you know, reasonable people that literally the world was going to end, right? Where, and you needed this, this preppers. And, and what, what people forget too Part of the reason for the huge bull market in equities in 1999, leading up into the first quarter of 2000, right? For was it, it broke, like a new lease on life kind of thing? Well, no, no, no. That that actually would have been cool. No, it was the Fed pumped half a trillion back when half a trillion was a lot. I mean, they they printed half a trillion dollars and pumped it in to try to help all the to counteract all this negative stuff that was going to happen when the electric grid shut down. And, and it turns out when that didn't happen, everyone was like, well, all that money, 
uh, stocks. Stocks got stonks got to go up. You know, there wasn't a word stonk back then, but the message boards were, and that's when Michael Saylor's micro strategy went like this, and all the shorts, the shorts were getting obliterated. I mean, Michael, it was the famous letter. Right? You should read the famous letter from Julian Robertson at the end of of March uh, 2000 when he shut down Tiger. He's like. I, I just don't understand. I, I, I've lost the script. I, 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 as a rational human being, I can't understand why people are buying these things at these prices and selling assets at pennies on the dollar, like airlines and, you know. And had he stayed, here's the crazy thing. He shut down in March. By the end of that year, the market was down 9%. Had he stayed in business, because we actually owned a big chunk of Tiger and we didn't redeem all of it. We kept a stub piece because he was our largest living alumni and um, at UNC, 58%. His portfolio was up 58% when everybody else was going down. And then 21 and 2001 was worse and 2002 was even worse. And, but he couldn't stay. Could everyone, everyone was leaving. Everyone was quitting. And that's, again, human beings do two things really well. We buy what we wish we would have bought and we sell what we're about to need. And, and we are spectacular. Anyway, so let's talk jobs. And, I, I, and you know, I never cheat. You know, the thing I love about this is I don't have to do any work. I don't have to do any work. You do all the hard work. You get all the charts. You prep all the hard questions. And all I have to do is respond. And, yeah. I, and I do... One thing is funny though, as I, I love when people, you know, all you do is 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 randomly talk. There are no there are no um, you know planned comments. I'm like, no, I have no sound bites. This is not a soundbite show. This is a let's talk about real time. And I just, yeah. but I think they get criticism of you know you're not giving me sound bites like on CNBC. I'm like, nope, nope, don't come here for Absolutely sound bites. Not the what, one more note about the Y2K bug, which is super interesting. So. There, there was a guy named Peter DeJager who he was sort of face of this and he was actually an engineer himself, went on to uh, announce everything. And, you know, I think his reputation has taken a little bit of a hit in, in hindsight. But, you know, he was warning people seven, 10 years before it ended up happening. He there was an estimate that the Y2K bug could cost. And, and by the way, to now, because now with the benefit of hindsight, everyone says, oh, this was a, a more a moral panic, essentially. But you know, President Clinton is on air saying this is the the maybe the largest, most complicated managerial problem we've ever had to face in this ever had to deal. Yeah, people estimated that it would cost anywhere from seventy uh, between four hundred million and six hundred billion to rectify. It ended up costing U.S. firms alone one hundred and twenty billion dollars. Like, so this wasn't actually a small problem. This was a big problem. But all right, let's get on to labor. So we had the here. I actually have got some charts for you. So we had ADP come in earlier this week. Now, ADP is not, and especially recently, has not been super indicative of what's going to happen from the actual jobs report, but people yeah. still pay attention to it. So I'll show it here nonetheless. Um, so we had a, a stronger report than that. The survey said 125,000. We actually got 164,000. We're now 15 minutes um, away from our... our uh, post the publishing of the official jobs data. So Mark, how do you predict that we're going to come in? Do you think we're going to get a hot jobs report, a little bit weak in line? What do you think? 
You know, you know, I'm I'm terrible at at the prediction because because when 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 a number is fake, as you know, I I believe that the Jobs number is fake. Although the fakeness got revised down, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, I just I just have no idea. But I'm I'm going to say we we came in in well short of of the ADP number. Mm. All right. So I'm going to read, I'm just pulling up the data here. So the U.S. December non-farm payrolls, the uh, the estimate was 170, came in at 216. That's oh, again, geez. the previous month of 199. The unemployment rate, uh, the previous unemployment rate was 3.7. We thought we were going to 3.8. Nope, we're staying pat at 3.7. The December average hourly earnings uh, on a month-over-month basis Previously, we were grown at 0.4%. We estimated we we're going to slow down to 0.3. Nope, we're staying pat at 0.4%. So in conclusion, Mark, for folks who've been looking for that inevitable recession, doesn't look like we're getting it anytime soon. No, 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 no. We've, we've uh, referenced Joseph Wang's, uh, he, I'll, I'll shout him out again, but he did a great 20-minute um, overview on his thoughts going into the coming year. And I think he is right, and I think Lynn Alden has been right about this for a long time, which is just how are you going to get a recession when we're running $2 trillion deficits on an annual basis? And maybe it's yeah. just as simple as that. Yeah, no, no and, and, and I think a couple of things. One, you know, jobs numbers are backward looking, right? So we're talking about December, which was was pretty good, right? We we all traveled for the holidays. You know, you went skiing and it was probably pretty busy. And I went to San Francisco to see my son and airplanes were full and the restaurants we went to were full. And, uh, you know, shopping was, was not like awesome, awesome, like off the charts, awesome. But, you know, trees were, were, you know, filled with presents underneath and, and shoppers shopped and, and stores had to hire temporary labor. It will be interesting to see what happens. Um, and, and the, the thing I, I said in terms of the revision, so, you know, you and I have talked about the birth death ratio and, and look, I, I think the jobs number is, is a fabrication, right? It, it uses this technology from 60, 70 years ago. It's just not applicable today. We know exactly how many people got jobs and how much they paid in taxes. We, we know that, right? I mean, that, that's all, it's all technology now, but yet we still use this silly idea of, well, at this point in economic expansion, there should be this many companies and, if, if you say that the expansion is, you know, 13 years old instead of two years old, that's a big difference in that birth death ratio. But they did an analysis that someone sent to me yesterday that said only 42% of the 3.1 million jobs that were reportedly created in 2023, 42% of them didn't exist. Fake. Mm. Just, just two, it was 2 million, not three. So the other, and I thought it was closer to 70% were fake, but only 42% were actually not real. Think about that. To report that we created 3 million jobs when we only created 2 million. How, how do you do that? I mean, how, and the way they do it is they report a big number. And then in the fine print, they revise the previous months down. And that's insane because no one looks at the revisions. They only look at the headline. So I, I just think the whole system is screwy, but I, I don't disagree with the, the primary point, which is if the government 
is going to spend $2 trillion that they don't have. Literally, that's what a deficit is. You're spending money you don't have. Um, yeah, it's really hard to see a, a recession, a pure recession. Now, will, will economic growth disappoint this year? Eh, probably. Yeah, probably. So let me, here's one thing I'm trying to, so here, let's look at the reaction to yields or the reaction that uh, the 10 year has been having here. So there was a sell-off in, there was a sell-off yesterday in the two year in response to this report. And then look at the move on the 10 year yield here uh, in response to the jobs report. So bonds are starting to sell off again. And actually, if you, again, it's, it's, if you're, following along on screen here where we're looking at the 10-year yield on a one-day basis, five-day basis, one-month basis, three months, six months. And, you know, it's interesting about this. I'm not going to draw draw lines on a chart kind of guy here, but obviously we were in, you know, we were moving in one direction since October, and it looks like we might have started to reverse that trend. And I'm starting to think to myself, what are yields going to do in the current regime. So the current regime, I think the the things that are going to move yields are one, there's obviously a supply dynamic, which you can push back on or not. But I think we've seen that that has started to matter again towards the end of this year. And then if we're not going to get the recession that everyone thought we were going to get, then, you know, that what 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 get what people buy in a recession is bonds. So if we're not going to get that recession, then it feels like we're actually going to not that that bid for bonds that might have come is not actually going to come because it's going to go for stocks instead. And so maybe we end up getting yields higher. I don't know. Look, I mean, how, how are they going to cut rates five times, which is now what, what is priced in, in the the futures? How is the fed going to cut rates five times if we don't have an economic contraction? I, they're not. the The answer is they're not, right? So the the belief system that you know we we need to to rally uh, risk assets, which is basically since October, a couple things happened globally. So one, China turned back on the printing press. Now, what's interesting is none of the money went into Chinese equities. Chinese equities made new five year lows to end the year. And I got that one totally wrong last year. I mean, woo. I mean, just it's in, incomprehensible to me that China could print over a trillion dollars and their equity markets would go down. That's just incomprehensible to me. But but that money didn't go to Chinese equities. It went to the Magnificent Seven and actually two of the Magnificent Seven, really. And so, but in the last week, the Mag Seven have been dropping as that, you know, interest rate turn has occurred. And if that accelerates with hot jobs numbers like this, I mean, I, I haven't looked at the futures, but my guess is, you know, equity futures probably selling off here. Yeah. Yeah. Quite, quite nicely. Um, or not nicely, if it's where you want to look at. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the other things that I'm thinking about in this context is how is the how is Bitcoin going to perform if we get the ETF? I mean, up, we'll start up and more up. <laughs> no, Michael, people just don't people just don't understand 
what this means, right? The thundering herd is coming. The thundering herd is coming. And yeah, you know, I was I was listening to um Scott Melker's show yesterday. He had um Don Balkunis, but um Seifert. Seifert, 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 I think I pronounced it right. James Seifert, the guy who's, you know, he and Eric have become these, these, you know, rock stars in the area of, you know, ETF approval speculation. But but James was saying that, or they, they were talking about um, you know, ETF approval and what's going to happen and and all this good stuff. And you know, Scott asked the question, you know, which platform do you think is is going to have the biggest impact? And they're like, well, you know, Fidelity, if Fidelity gets approved, you know, they're vertically integrated so they could, you know, push the the BTF to their clients. Like, yeah, that, that's good. Schwab, because Schwab, you know, is where a lot of RIAs, independent RIAs custody their assets and, and they, you know, facilitate ETFs. Yeah, that's big. The Thundering Herd, baby. Merrill and UBS, which have been, no, no, you can't do anything. Like UBS, nothing, nothing that's related to this and, and Merrill, it's even worse. Like if you made your money in crypto, you can't even be a client at Merrill. So both of them are going to have to unleash the dogs and they control more money than people understand um, because the boomers, that's where it is, right? The boomers have an account at UBS or Merrill Lynch. That that's what they, that's what we do, right? We have brokers and you know, you and I have talked about this all the time, the digital divide, right? Ask someone over 35, who's your broker? I don't know, UBS Merrill Lynch, right? Ask someone under 35, who's your broker? What's a broker? I mean, I, I have Robinhood. By the way, have you watched Dumb Money? I haven't watched it yet, no. Oh my God, Michael. Michael, one, one of the best movies. I mean, it's not, it's not, good as, it's not as good as Maverick, but, but one of the best movies I've seen in a very long time. I mean- so good. You got to, you got to watch it. I, there are not that many movies I'll watch over and over. I would watch this. I'm looking. So is dumb, dumb money. That's the Seth Rogen, GameStop. Seth Rogen one GameStop yeah. story. Yeah. So, so good. And, and maybe it's better for me because I'm like, Oh my God, that's Ken and that's Stevie and that's Gabe. And, and I know these guys and, so that makes it kind of fun. And just some of the characteristics they have. I mean, because I know I, I think Ken actually made a sued the the movie makers because they he didn't like his depiction. But there were certain things about it that were pretty accurate. And um, but the story and the guy who did, I don't know who the actor is that that played Roaring Kitty. Boy, was he good. His wife was awesome. I mean, it's just the whole thing was. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time, laughing out loud, hilariously. It was so good. So good. All right. We'll have to give that a watch. I'm, I, I don't want spoilers on it because I, I want to see it myself. But I thought there were multiple different ways that the filmmakers could have gone about portraying that story. There were different takes on it. I thought it was indicative of the time that they essentially decided to paint Roaring Kitty as the good guy getting one over on these rich Wall Street guys. And whereas in real time, what you saw was some politicians who will remain unnamed 
saying that this was market manipulation. And oh, Michael, no, that's all in it. It's all in the movie. Really interesting divide. It's, it's yeah. amazing. They, they, all that's in the movie, and was was fun as I watched with my my wife and and my daughter in law and my son. And my son's kind of in the biz, tech business and investing, but my my daughter in law works for PG and E. You know, she's a, a an analyst in their strategy group, and uh, and my wife is not you know, into this stuff. You know, she's, she's my, my, my good opposite. They were like, Oh my God, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? They tried to do this. And I'm like, yeah, that, that, that's real. I mean, it's real that there are people who can make things happen like shutting down a platform to a single company. Like, no, that could never happen in real life. Oh, yes, it it can. And it did. And what, what I thought was really good, it wasn't just about Roaring Kitty. It was about six-ish people who were involved in the people who were following Roaring Kitty. And those were interesting stories, very interesting stories. You know, a nurse and a college co-ed and... And uh, a guy, a guy who worked at GameStop, that was hilarious. And that that actor was really good. I mean, I just I thought it was just a feel good story. And I'm sure there are people who quibble with certain elements of it, but I, I just thought it was awesome. All right, I wanna I wanna get your take on we we also one of the I guess last stories of the week that we have here is I wanna do a do a check in on the Fed's policy around quantitative tightening. So we got a little bit more details from the December meeting and we are now the Fed apparently like some Fed officials are mulling an end to balance sheet cuts. So basically the quote here I'm shocking, looking at you later, say. No, I Michael, know. shocking. Yeah. Shocking that that the buyer of last resort would would stop selling Bonds. That's just shocking to me. Mm. So in a world here's the trillion dollar deficits and no buyers for our bonds. So well, right. we, we've talked yeah. about this. I told you that in 2007, the Bank of Japan said no more. We're not going to buy any more bonds. When they were at a hundred, I mean, they were. I'm sorry, they were at debt was debt to GDP was a hundred. Now debt to GDP is two twenty, and they owned twenty percent of all the government bonds, and now they own seventy. So they lied and six months ago or eight months ago, they, they lied to us. And the fact that people believe those lies, I actually think is kind of comical because you just have to do math. If there's a supply of bonds, someone has to buy them. That's well, the way that's the world. That's the funny thing about all of these discussions and machinations and people and I understand why people do it and we do it as well. You know, you, we try to speculate on a one to three month sort of sure. one month to three year time horizon. But the the writing feels like it's on the wall at the end of the day. You can't run a two trillion dollar deficit forever. And something. Well, no, something you, you can. You, you, you can if two things happen. If you're willing to buy them all yourself. So you, 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 you issue with one hand and you buy with the other and you're willing to decimate your currency. If you're willing to do those two things, have at it. And again, 
We've seen it. Go back in history every single time that an empire becomes focused at the top of, of very small control, cronyism, where capitalism turns to cronyism, deficits rise, debt increases, seniorage happens, devaluation of currency happens. Ultimately, the empire collapses and it disappears because of hyperinflation. That is the only choice other than to stop the deficit spending. Mm. It, it, it's literally just math. People have written these these books about this. You know, what makes an empire rise and fall? There was a guy named Edward Gibbons that wrote the definitive, you know, many, many volume epic on Rome. Yeah. There, there are a lot of different factors that go into it and they all, sure. you know, there, there tend to be these correlating factors. So what I would gently poke at there is that I, I don't think it's that it's because of hyperinflation. It's inflation tends to come at the same time as all these other things end up coming, which is really, what's the symptom, what's the symptom not the cause. Yeah. It's really people, empires grow to such a large degree that the administrative burden of managing the empire is outside of the bounds of what the system was set up to do. And usually I feel like actually what causes empires to fail is administrative and operational failures. And that manifests around corruption. corruption. Well, I mean, and usually too, it's like a founder of a company, right? You see, I mean, companies are kind of a good metaphor for countries at a large amount of scale. There's a founder, right? Oftentimes the founder, the warlord, right? These tend to be like warring, go out and conquest, win all the, the battles and the lands. You know, the Alexander, the greats of the world, yeah. they're good at going out and winning a bunch of military victories. Usually the one that's winning the military victories, the Julius Caesars are not the, the governors, the Augustuses of the world. And so those are not the same people, but then you need a secession plan, you know, in order to to shore up why this person des- de- deserves to be the emperor, you need to tell people that they're a god, right? There, there's a divine aspect to this person. Oh, Therefore, yeah. you need lineage. It's just there are all these complications that that that, that you need four types, it. right? You need four types. You need the four personality types in every team, in every governance structure, in every military. You need generalists. I mean, you need generals. You need the visionaries, right? The ones that that are the warlords. They're, they're, the, they're the conquering heroes. Okay. Then you need the, uh, um, you need the, the, the strategists, the, the visionaries. Then you need the, um, not the tacticians. Um, shoot. Yeah. No, the, the, yeah. Then you need the tacticians. Um, you know, the, the, the commanders that, that actually, you know, move the 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 troops and and command the 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 prefects. Then you need the um, the guardians, the the actual logisticians. That's it. The logisticians that actually get stuff. They they make sure that the fuel is where the tanks are, and not two miles behind. And they make sure the food doesn't run out for the for the soldiers. And that's where the the problems are. To your point, the operational problems because the visionary isn't thinking about that the general ain't thinking about i gotta have food for my troops he just says hey go take that hill but then to your point then you need the politicians you need the communicators 
not only to communicate to the masses how great they have it and why they should be happy, but also within the ranks to, you know, explain the political moves that, you know, because the, 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 the visionary, the tactician and the logistician all have different jobs and they don't want to talk to each other because they don't speak the same language, right? The visionary leader, the warlord does not talk log- logistics. Don't, don't talk to me about the details. And I, I, I know that I, I am a you know personality type that I can't spell the word list never had a list in my life. I'm not good at details, but I have an amazing COO that is, he has lists of his lists and is so good at details that together we, we make the company function. And that having those four types in any organization is really important. If you have all warlords, bad stuff happens. If you have all tacticians, Never get anything done because you don't know where to go. If you have all logisticians, boy, you're ready. But not ready for what, right? Don't even know what to do because you don't, you don't have the vision. And, you know, there are a lot of good talkers, but, you know, they are trying to explain all the bad stuff that, that the, the warlords, you know, uh, stirred up. So I, I think if you go through every government, you can find the strategists, the tacticians, the logisticians, and the the politicians. Hmm. I'm mapping some of those uh, those archetypes onto Blockworks personalities, and I oh, there you go. Yes, in, yeah, in Blockworks, you definitely have. Yeah, we've got our we've got our mix. Yeah, you have a tactician, you have a a logistician, and then you've got the the politi- you know the politicians, the the good yeah. community. I agree with that. All right. I want to get your take on QT, though. And one one uh, connection that I would draw is this is central bank dogma that, you know, you've got a couple of different levers to pull, the the largest two being the direction of interest rates, but also the amount that you have on your balance sheet. And as as the thinking goes, those shouldn't be opposite one another, right? It's kind of like putting your foot on the gas and brake at the same time. So it actually with the benefit of hindsight, as soon as the Fed started talking about rate cuts, we probably should have seen tapering of QT at the same time. So, you know, kind of makes sense ultimately, but I guess we'll see. Uh, we'll see how, whether yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I look, I, 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 you know, I take, and I, you know, we, we said we're going to be sunny today and it's the feast of the epiphany. So I don't want to, I don't want to go sinister, but you know, I don't think they have uh, our best interests at heart. Um, so uh, I, I think they're going to do whatever it takes to keep themselves in power. And look, is it shocking to anyone that right before an election year, the guy who's appointed by the president says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to cut rates. You betcha. I'm going to keep you out of recession. Oh, yeah, I'm 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 so dovish. Of course he's going to say that. Um now the fact that it's going to be really hard to do that in an environment of of massive deficits and nobody buying bonds. Um and look Rob or not, he was just on a a show that I was on uh, I think yesterday. And uh you know, he talks about this a lot that the reason the bond market hasn't completely collapsed 
is because the boomers, right? 65 to 85 year old people, they buy bonds. They just do. And, you know, the older you are in that cohort, the more bonds you buy. And so there is a fixed bid. And I used to go, I used to say this all the time that, you know, uh, when I, when I, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I knew the writing was on the wall, that there was going to be this big imbalance, uh, I said, you know, there's no law yet that says you have to buy bonds in your 401k, right? If it was up to me, it'd be illegal, right? Especially for young people, you shouldn't be allowed to own bonds. You should have all equities. But they've talked about passing a law that would make people buy government bonds in their 401k. And those, those words will get cacophonously loud again if you know we, we start having failed treasury auctions. And I'm sure Bianco talks about this too. You know, the, the treasury auctions are, are what you got to watch. If, if they're not functioning well, rates will do things that, that we can't afford. And look, we already can't afford the current rate regime with the current debt load. And the debt load's only getting worse at an increasing rate because that's how exponential growth works. And, and that's why they had to do something including getting Bill Ackman to tweet that I covered all my bond shorts. And literally since that day, you know, interest rates went down a hundred basis points. Now it didn't help the housing market, you know, mortgage applications hit new lows again, and it hadn't really uh, helped the, the, the treasury demand from outside the U S but, but inside, you know, we're, we're, we haven't gone over that 21, I think it's 21% level uh, where interest as a percentage of the budget deficit, uh, I mean, but of the budget, not the deficit, the budget itself. Um, when we start getting to 22, 23, 24, bad, bad stuff's going to happen. So I will we're say not there. That Bill, Ackman, that Bill Ackman call uh, covering his bond shorts, that was just about peak rates. So pretty good. Of course it was. He had inside information. I mean, you you don't you you don't think he did that unintentionally and without help, right? I mean, I have no idea. I don't insider know. Insider trading I, laws only apply to those of us who aren't in the group. Right? You know, the movie talked about who's in the group, and if you're in the group, insider trading does not apply to you. It just doesn't. Well, if you think about it. There's a funny thing about ins- I mean, who moves a market, right? It, it, I mean, in in most markets, there are a couple big players. So if you are one of those big players, and likely you're friends with another big player, is it really inside information? If you all kind of talk with your, but I, I don't know. But I, but again, I, you and I have slightly different <laughs> worldviews on this. I, I really think George Carlin, just like he's done so many times, summed it up. And this is my worldview, which is. You don't need a formal conspiracy when interests converge. And that is what I think. I think there is a small group of people. You can call it an informal conspiracy, but there's clearly a, a, a there's a, a gap in the force. There's a mis imbalance in the force out there because obviously things aren't working. Uh, decisions are being made that, I don't know, I can even, if like I could put myself in the position of a policymaker maybe 10, 15 years ago, you see this demographics problem coming, you're faced with only bad decisions, and you're trying to pick the less bad decision, clearly, maybe led by the US, 
But globally, we've gone down this weird experiment of just debasing currency simultaneously. I could see the logic of making that that decision as a young person being on the side where I'm looking at the results of that experiment and potentially bearing the butt of it. I don't like that we ran that experiment. I would have rather let's, we let's bring it all back. Medicine. Let's bring it all back. Let's bring it all back to to this. Right. There's a reason, Michael. It's not a coincidence. There is a reason that one of the entries in the Genesis block is banks on the brink or chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. Mm -hmm. That's not a coincidence, right? To the point, least bad answer is to devalue the currency. You're not going to pay the debt back. You're not going to restructure it. You're not going to default on it. Those are off the table. The only choice is to devalue. And therefore, it's a race to the bottom of the Western over-indebted aging demographic, Japan, Europe, US, right? 65 to 85-year-old people with all these entitlements that have been promised, made by themselves. Remember, an entitlement is a promise you make to yourself that you don't fund and ask your kids to pay for. Great. That's the problem. Who wouldn't vote for that? Great. So it's a race to the bottom. And, and, you know, I talked about this a year ago, my 10 surprises thing that I do, which is coming up next week. So one of them was that some other asset, you know, yen, euro would have to be in the hot seat and the dollar would have a tough year. The dollar went down 5% last year. No, the dollar's super strong. Nope. Nope. It was the euro's turn to be the strong one. Because the problem with being strong, if your economy is, is, basically dependent on you exporting things, you need a weak currency, not a strong currency. So Europe, the euro was created to, to diminish the value of, of the currency because if it was the Deutschmark, it'd be super strong because everybody knew that all they needed, all they, all they did was make cars and machine tools to export to the rest of the world. So they wanted the lowest possible currency in order to be a mercantilist. So that's why the euro was created. That's why Christine Lagarde says the euro must persist. We must get everybody in, all the crappy currencies, because we want more crappy, the better, because we want it to go low. And the yen has to go low. And Kurodasan's like, I'm going down, down, down. I'm going to create the biggest tsunami of liquidity. Look at the M2 creation in Japan sometime. I mean, we think we're good at creating money. Oh, no, 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 no. Kurodasan is is the big kahuna. He is hold the my king. beer. Hold yeah, hold my beer. I mean, and and so the yen went down the most. I mean, the yen was down 30% at one point last year through October. Down 30% in less than a year. Should have okay. gone to Japan. Dollar, absolutely. My son is all over me about that. He's like, Dad, we need to go to the Nintendo Museum. I'm like, yes, we will do. And uh, he's a big sushi guy, so we have to go to Japan. But um there was actually a Pokemon Go tournament thing in Japan, and I probably should have taken him, but it would have been fun. Um, so, but it was right at a time where I couldn't do it. So, um, bring it back to Bitcoin. The technology now exists to opt out. Not with everything, not with all your wealth, but with a portion. With the running money, with the FU money, whatever, you can opt out of this race to the bottom. And that shift from inflationary currency to deflationary currency for a portion of your wealth 
is the smartest thing that any investor can do right now. And it is get off zero, right? Which all of these, you know, thundering herd, they're at zero. They have zero. It ain't going to be zero for very much longer. And that herd of people coming to this realization is why, look, we've been talking about this for years, you and I, and, and for the last year on the show, 2024, it's the beginning. It's not, this is the beginning of this tech cycle, the beginning of the blockchain era, the beginning of the Bitcoin era. It's so exciting. I mean, the next four years are going to be just big, big fun. Big fun. Big fun. I agree. I agree. All right, Mark, that's as good of a place to end it as any. Best hour of my week, as usual. I will see you same time next week. Cheers. Cheers.